Um, you probably have indentations in your Bible. I just had to, I had to get a new Bible because we've been going through. So my last Bible broke. That's how long we've been in Genesis. <laughs> oh, me. No. Uh, anyways, we'll get tonight. We'll get going. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to look tonight. Let's pick up here verses 4 and 5. And then we're going to see if we can make it through verse 19-ish tonight is what we're going to shoot for. Keep your laughter to yourself. This is your first night back. We will we will kick you out. <laughs> There's always one in the crowd. No, that's all right. I was expecting it to come from somewhere in the back, over there in the crow's nest, to be laughing. But all right, tonight, uh, verse four and five. It says, "In the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were eight hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred thirty years, and he died." When you're young. You think that 30 is old, and then you get to 30, and some of us aren't there yet, but you find it's not old at all, and then you start thinking, well, maybe it's the next one, or the next one, or the next one. Y'all, I think 900 years old is pretty old, right? Now, what we're going to see tonight as we get into this, they're living a whole lot longer. The world is a whole lot different in these times, um, not just because of you know, the way the world is, but... Before the flood, I want you to know this, there is a great deal, and I'm comfortable saying this as someone who has studied the Bible, this is my whole entire life, there is a great deal of mystery about the pre-flood world. There's a lot of things that we just don't fully know. And you know something? God doesn't give us all those great details. You know why? Because they don't fully matter. What He does give us is this grand scheme that shows us the lineage of Christ. Now, chapter 5 tonight, here's what this is doing. Uh, some of you probably would look at chapter 5 and think this is not where my life verse is coming from because it's just genealogy, but this is incredibly important because this is going to be pointing us to Christ. If we don't have Genesis 5, we don't have John 1.1, right? If we don't have Genesis 5, we don't have the cross, we don't have the empty tomb, we don't have a physical Savior, a literal Savior who literally and physically had nails driven into His body and uh, bled literal blood for your sins and for mine. This is why Genesis 5 is critically important. Now, let's begin here. As we look, verses 4 and 5, the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth. So he has Seth, and then he lives another 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. Now, notice this, as we've talked about before, verse 4 shows us that the Bible is not a phone book, right? It's not a textbook. And it's not a phone book. It's the Word of God. It's the revealed Word of God. So what is he doing? He's showing us that there are who knows how many other sons and daughters that Adam has during this process, right? You can do the math. He lives to be another 800 years old. If he's only ha able to have kids for another two, 300 years of his life, he's still got plenty of time to make babies, done, right? Now, th that is mind-boggling to think about. People think that when the world was destroyed in Genesis chapter 6 through 8 during the Great Flood, People think that it was just a few folks. People think maybe just a, a small little town like Hillsville or something, or maybe just the size of a county. There were millions, if not billions of people on the earth when the flood happens, right? There's nearly 2,000 years of history from the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 until the great flood in Genesis chapter 6. You go, well, that's only three chapters. Well, guess what? They're living to 900 years old, right? That's a whole long time to populate. And remember, what is God's first command for mankind? 
This would be fruitful, multiply, right? Replenish the earth, fill it up. And so that's exactly what they're doing here. Now, the days of Adam here, as Sorensen writes, he helps out a little bit. He says, though it is noted that Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son, that is not to imply he had no other children before Cain. To the contrary, and noted in verse 4, he indeed begat other sons and daughters. It seems only probable some of them were born even prior to Cain. You say, well, we don't know. And no, we don't know. What we do know is this. Cain and Abel were mentioned. Why? Because through one of them was going to come the lineage. But that one was murdered. And what this is going to do is Cain kills Abel. Abel was the good one. Abel was the faithful one. Abel was the faithful seed. This starts the division between the unfaithful seed or the lost world, the broad way, the way of Cain and the way of Abel, the way of faith as we have seen throughout the Scriptures so far. Abel is murdered by his brother. Well, who comes up next to take the place of the faithful seed? Well, you back up to Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. It is a reminder that God's promise to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that her seed will crush the head of the serpent is going to come to pass. There will be a faithful seed that will come. And what you and I find tonight is that we are of the way of Abel. We are the way of Seth. Because what does it tell us then about Seth? In chapter 4, verse 26, And to Seth to him also were born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then, men, uh, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. This is a reestablishment of true biblical worship. This is the reestablishment of calling upon the name of the Lord. As we've talked about this, the idea to call upon his name, it is the very basis of salvation. Right? The Bible tells us in, in Romans, uh, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a Bible promise. To call upon his name is to express faith, dependence, trust. It is to give oneself to God alone. It is, uh, it is depending upon Him for everything, and that is especially of salvation from sins and for uh, eternity. Sorensen goes on the right. Of note that is, is that Seth is recorded as being in the very likeness and image of his father, Adam. That is remarkably similar to the comment made by God prior to his creation of Adam, Genesis 1.28. Each of Adam's children bore the human spirit and genetic code of their parents, and to that extent were after his likeness and image. Now, here's going to be the critical point of, of this. However, what may be implied is that Seth was specifically trained by his parents to be godly. They had experienced the folly of their sin and its corrupting influence upon their son Cain. Therefore, they determined to train Seth in the image of God in which they originally were created. What may be implied is that Adam and Eve realized how sin had corrupted Cain and his other um, and his other unnamed siblings and descendants. They therefore determined to train Seth in the image and likeness of godliness, which they, through sin's hard lessons, had learned the hard way. You say, well, how do we know Adam and Eve were teaching them anything? Well, look back at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. How do you think those boys learned how to be keeper of sheep and tillers of ground? Mom and dad. Adam and Eve were the first people, literally, formed and fashioned by God, formed Adam from the dust or the clay of the ground, breathed the breath of life into him, made him a living soul, and then after he's got him walking around and, and, and taking care of things in the garden and, and, and protecting it and keeping it from sin, he brings the animals to him, he gives Adam the role and responsibility to name the animals. And in so doing, he finds out there's male and female, male and female, male and female, because that's how God created it. it. tells us that in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. 
And so Adam sees this need. God calls the deep sleep and takes one of his ribs and then forms and fashions his wife. And Adam calls woman. And then later on in chapter 3 after the fall is when Eve is first called Eve, which means that she's the mother of all living. Not just physical living, but it is that through her will come the one who will bring eternal life. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the lineage. That's the idea of real life. Only life that God can give. Now notice, Eve in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, if you will, to some degree, brags about how she's gotten a man. Right? She has created this little boy. Instead of him, Cain, being the Messiah, he would end up being the murderer. And we see that ultimately salvation cannot come from, from her works or even her womb. It is through the hand of God that will bring the lineage to pass. This is why even though Cain, being used of the devil, will murder his brother, driven by his own lust and greed and pride and selfishness and all those things, that God, uh, his plan of redemption will not be thwarted and that Seth will then be raised up. And ultimately, down through the lineages, nearly 4,000 years later, Christ the Lord Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, which we're going to celebrate here in just another, how many days till Christmas? Anybody? 70? You're counting down? Great day. Okay. Who would have thought it would have been the preacher's wife of all people? <laughs> oh, me. <laughs> 70 days. Oh, that means I got to start getting Christmas presents, I guess. I got 69 more days. That's all. <laughs> all right. Now, here's what we find about this. Here's what's critical. In chapter 4, it says in, chapter, in verse number 3 In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground, an offering unto the Lord. Where do you think he learned to bring an offering unto the Lord? Mom and dad. Verse number 4 And Abel also brought of the first things of the flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto the able into his offering they didn't have sunday school they had mom and dad they had adam and eve who knew god in the garden before the fall in perfect condition how did they learn to worship from adam and eve mom and dad now this is what's important tonight here and this isn't in your notes this is this is all free of charge tonight parents you want to raise godly children don't count on me to do it for you don't count on a sunday school teacher or a youth pastor and certainly do not count it to our public school teachers. They can't do it. And it's not their job, neither. It's your job. Now, now people, people get all sorts of upset about training children, and we go, well, we need Sunday school, we need youth pastors, we need children's pastors, we need this, that pastor. What we need is we need godly parents. The greatest difference that was probably made, in I know in my life, in my Christian walk, godly parents. And I didn't have godly parents for the whole time. It was when they got saved that the Lord changed things, right? And so we find that the key, and, and you can ask anybody who's ever done bus ministries or children's ministries, you can, get, you can see them saved and discipled in this church, and you can have them for an hour or two a week, but if all they got at home and all they got at school and all they got at clubs and all they got on online is nothing but the world, it's going to be very hard for it to stick. I've seen countless friends and young people as a youth pastor. I've seen some, some young people who I got to, to pastor when they were teenagers who are serving the Lord right now, and I thank God for it. It's one of the sweetest things ever. I had a young lady who, while she was in college going to Ferrum, drove all the way from Ferrum one Sunday to Danville just to come see us. I mean, nothing makes you feel gooder than that, right? And to see now married and, and they're having kids, which makes us feel old, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're living life and they're living it for the Lord. Praise God for that, right? but I've also seen the ones who have gone the opposite direction. 
that breaks your heart. The vast majority is over in this section. They're out in the world because it's all they know. You want to know the ones that can reach your kids and your grandkids? It's you. If your grandkids, if they don't live in your home, it's a whole lot tougher. Right? But what you can do, you can pray. There have been more souls saved because of praying mamas, daddies, grandmas and grandpas, neighbors and loved ones than we could ever possibly know. But this shows us that Adam and Eve taught them and they trained them. Teaching affects the mind. Training affects the heart. What happens when we send kids to school is both are happening now. The mind and the heart. Because what comes in the mind will settle down into the heart. This is why we must be careful with what we allow into the eyes and the ears of our children. You go, boy, this sounds so legal. No, it's far from it. We need to have biblical standards and we need to help parents and parents help one another depend upon the Lord because we talk about wanting to train up our children. Don't just train them up in church. Train them to know Christ. And the greatest way to do that is for them to see what it means to follow Christ, to know Christ, to walk with Him. Every one of us is making an influence on somebody else right now. And it's going to last forever, whether you know it or not. Now, with this, some things to note about the pre-flood world here. You see, God had ordered the family. Things were going. The f- and, and then things, because of sin, start getting worse and worse. So the home gets destroyed. Right? Think about this. Over in the line of Cain, the seventh one from Cain is this guy named Lamech at the end of chapter 4. He ends up being um, what the world would call today polyamorous or having an open relationship or a thruple of a marriage, right? That's wickedness. It's sinfulness, right? It, it, it undermines the authority of Scripture. It rejects God's command to have one spouse and that of the opposite sex, right? As God has commanded ordained. Why? Because that's how it's meant to be. It don't work any other way. It's not a home, it's not a marriage outside of the way that God has given it. It's meant to work the way it works, and it's worked the way it works. And when things are going the way that God had ordained, notice how society is a whole lot better for it. Look at how far we've gotten. And look at where we are. They go together. Now with this pre-flood world, there are some things that we don't know, but there are some things that we do know. People are living much longer. There's a multitude of possible reasons, but a specific reason is, is, is unknown. Is it because... There's not as much sin involved in the world. Well, it's going to get pretty simple really quick. Is it because they don't have certain viruses, illnesses? Is it because perhaps the canopy before the flood? I I tend to think so. There's something geologically that is allowing this sort of greenhouse effect where they're able to live life. I mean, the, the way the world would have looked then is we can't imagine what it looks like now, right? The whole world then in some way is used to be a farm for mankind. It is providing all that they need. All they need is right there. All they needed was in the garden, but sin drove them from the garden. Now, then we also find that the population is growing rapidly. How do we know that? Well, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, and he begat sons and daughters, and he lived another 800 years after having Seth. So they're having a lot of kids. And their kids are having a lot of kids. And we're going to find that in chapter 5. We've already seen it in chapter 4. They're sprouting everywhere. Right? <laughs> There's something in the water <laughs> during these times. Right? There's something. Sin as well, though, is running rampant. This is what we know. 
And the great chasm between those who call upon the Lord and those who build their own kingdom is growing. The line of Cain, the wicked lineage, the unfaithful lineage, the unbelieving lineage that, that goes in chapter 4, that is just whew. Now They're building up societies. They're building up kingdoms. They've got the arts. They've got entertainment. They've got brass. They've got all sorts of metalworks. They've got all sorts of things that they've done. They know how to work and to build with their own hands. But what they're doing, God has designed us to work with our hands. But it's to give Him glory, right? It's not to give ourselves glory or to make ourselves a name or to build our own kingdom. Rather, it's to be used for Him. And so they're going about this the wrong way. So sin is running rampant, but also on the other side, this great chasm is that you've got these remnant, if you will, this faithful few who are following the way of Seth, if you will. The way of Abel, the way of faith, calling upon the name of God. Now, even the faithful, though, even the faithful over here, you know what they're like? You, know, you want to know what the common denominator between these two? This unfaithful and this faithful? Sin and death. Both are sinners. Both will die. Because of Adam, one man, sin into the world and death by sin. So uh, all are born sinners and going to die. When you're born, you're already beginning to die. It's weird to think of it that way. You're just beginning to live, but you're just beginning to die as well. Now, with this, what we find, though, is that in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the focus of all of Scripture. Christ is the object. Christ is the motive. Christ is the meaning. Christ is the one that, that all of Scripture is pointing to because it is Christ who conquers death, who conquers sin, who makes a way to have forgiveness of sins, to have life instead of death. And even though we might face physical death, then we'll just begin to live, those of us who know Christ. Now Adam, though, in this, uh, let's look here. It says in verse number 5, And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. wonder what he got for social security. I I don't know. But then notice the end of this verse. This is important. And he died. He died. Why? Sin brings death. Adam brought sin and death into the world. And though I do believe that Adam, at some point in line, had, had depended and trusted upon the Lord and had taught what it means, perhaps. Nevertheless, do we know for sure? I don't. Will I find out one day? Probably so. Nevertheless, I do know this. He died as God had promised. If you remember this, God had told them, He said, in, in, before even Eve comes along, in Genesis chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Freely. He says, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. One tree. Don't eat that one. People would say, oh, the law is so strenuous. The law is so terrible, binding. He had one rule. There's one tree. Don't eat of that one. We'll talk about God's graciousness. He says the rest is for you to freely enjoy. That's the idea of God's grace. The rest is for you. One thing. A man would say, well, that's the one thing I want. That's what sin does. Sin entices where we might have the whole garden of God. We could have the presence of God. We could have the, the produce that God gives to us. But sin looks so much better than all that God has. 
but it leads to death. Every single time. He says, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. What happened the day that he ate thereof? He died spiritually that day. And then 930 years later, he tasted physical death. It's a frightening thing to think of. 930 years sounds like an eternity to you and I, right? I mean, that's a long time. And then now, one point in time, Adam took his last breath. And real eternity begun for him. And it will begin for each of us. The great thing of this, though, is though someone can be born again spiritually, the promise of physical death remains. However, in chapter 5, with Enoch, this will be important to give believers a promise and a picture of the coming of the Lord. There's going to be a generation of believers that will not physically die. They'll be caught up with the Lord, and so shall they ever be. That might be us for all we know. Had someone the other day, I don't know who, but someone Saturday wrote Maranatha on my, on my whiteboard out there. You know what that is? That is the way that used to say, come Lord Jesus is the way that we might say it, right? It come quickly, right? The first century church longed for the day that Christ would come back for his people. We must do the same. Now in chapter 5, what we're going to see, and we're not going to see it tonight, you guys already guessed it, but we're going to find Enoch. And Enoch is going to be the picture of the rapture of the church that God is going to call his people up before the great day of wrath and tribulation. Will we have to go through tribulations? Yes, Jesus promised that. Will we have to go through the tribulation? No. Praise the Lord for it. Now let's look verses 6 to 19, all right? We're going to get through this real quick. It says, And Seth lived in 105 years and begat <coughs> Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos. Notice these ages, by the way. 807 years and begat sons and daughters. Notice that. Bigger family tree, bigger family tree, sons and daughters, sons and daughters. How many sons and daughters did he have? I don't know. <laughs> Lots of them, it seems. It's at least in the plural, right? Bare minimum. And you know what they're doing as well? Remember, here in chapter 5, not every single person alive is mentioned. The ones that are leading to who? Jesus. Those are the ones mentioned. Why? Because those are the ones leading to Jesus. But there's plenty of other sons and daughters. You know what they're doing? They're getting hitched. And they're having kids. And they're having sons and daughters. So this family tree is budding rapidly, right? Now, let's move forward here. Verse number, where was I? We'll say verse number 8. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Notice that. He died. And Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. Notice that once more. And all the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. Notice that again. We find this strange thing in chapter 5 of life and death that these folks see sons and daughters and see a population growth. They see the obedience to God's command to be fruitful and multiply. But they also see the consequence of disobedience to God, and they died. Not one of them was making it out. They all would taste of death. And that's why when we get to verse 22 to 24, when we talk about Enoch, the whole chapter changes on its head. It flips upside down. Because we go from, and we got sons and daughters, and he died. 
and begat sons and daughters, and he died. And he was really old for a really long time, and he begat sons and daughters, and he died. To, he didn't die. He walked with God, and God took him. Right? That's such a stark contrast to the whole rest of the chapter. And that's what's building up to. Look, verse number 10. Does that sound good? All right. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. I read that already. And all the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalalel. <clears throat> there we go. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalalel 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalel lived 60 and 5 years and begat Jared and Mahalalel lived after he begat Jared 830 years and begat sons and daughters and all the days of Mahalalel were 800 and, uh, 890 and 5 years and he died, you guessed it and Jared lived in 160 and 2 years and he begat Enoch y'all say Enoch or Enoch? Enoch, I've heard Enoch, Enoch how many, let's do a vote y'all want to have a business meeting real quick? We'll accept either answer here. This will be like Jeopardy, all right? And Jared lived after he begat Enoch. Enoch, e, big E guy here, right? 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Notice that pattern over and over. Sons and daughters, real old, died. Sons and daughters, real old, died. Not with Enoch. Enoch. Whatever you want to call him. Now, as we get into this, we see here, and I have a little note for you in the booklet. In your booklet, you should have had a thing of maps and tables. Y'all still got that? All right, I don't, so. <laughs> Teacher came prepared tonight. Uh, but you can take a look. That is for you. I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but that is for you to take a look at. That helps out with to see some of the lineage and the line that is leading up during the time of the flood, some of the generation. Notice in those maps, some of the overlap. There were some folks who were living way over here, but who would have known and met the people that were living way over here. That's wild to think about. Some of the stories that could have been told in these 900 years and things. Now notice this as well. Each generation is one generation closer to the promised seed and the promised land. These generations lived and taught faithfulness to God and to their children. This is leading to the lineage of Christ. Now, hold your place there. Got your place held there? Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Now, we're going to hear probably Luke chapter 2 and 3 and stuff here in a couple months on account of Christmas. But notice in Luke chapter 3, this is important here. Luke chapter 3. We're going to read the Bible backwards. Is that okay for a minute? Y'all all right? Uh, <laughs> I'd have to have a motion first. But <laughs> we're going to read verse 36, 37, 38, but we're going to read it verse 38, 37, 36. All right? Okay, all right. We'll back it up. Luke chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 36, 37, 38, but we're going to read verse 38, 37, 36. Just follow along with Tony. He'll help you out. He... <laughs> All right. Verse 38. We're going to go real backwards here. The Son of God, who is Adam, 
The son of who had a son. His name was Seth. Seth had a son. His name was Enos. Enos had a son. His name was Canaan. We're in verse 37 now. Canaan had a son. His name was Mahalil. Notice the difference in spelling. That doesn't mean errors. That means a difference between Hebrew and Greek. Y'all good with that? The Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, touch Aramaic. All right? And we're not getting into all that quite tonight. All right? Because I'm, I'm a whole lot rusty. Now, with this Mahalil, his son, his name was Jared. Jared had a son. His name was Enoch. Enoch. <laughs> we're unsure. His son's name was Methuselah. Who's Methuselah? He's oldest. How old's he? Real old, right? We'll get into him in Genesis 5 here in just a little bit. Then notice verse 36, and this is the rest of chapter 5 of Genesis. Methuselah has Lamech. Different Lamech. Not the evil, wicked Lamech of chapter 4. This is the good Lamech of chapter 5, all right? They were running out of names. They had a lot of kids, all right? (laughs) Lamech had a son. What was his name? Noah. What do we know about Noah? Preacher of righteousness. Built the big old ark, didn't he? Right? Now, what do we find with this? Why do we read Luke chapter 3 there? This shows us that this Bible is true. Genesis matters. Genealogy matters. Because this is proof here showing. Notice that. Those lineages didn't change. You know when Luke was written compared to Genesis? A long time difference. And what does this show us? In this great big span that God's Word and even down to the very lineage of Christ did not change. That means I can trust this book. That means I can trust the words of Jesus because Jesus quoted plenty from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, We also find that the whole New Testament is repeating, not even necessarily repeating, but giving reference to or even quoting from the Old Testament. Old Testament and New Testament aren't separate gods and necessarily separate books. It's this. It's been said this before. It's not original with me, all right? I'm not this smart or this creative. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Does that make sense? Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. You can't fully grasp all that's there. That's why there's pictures and types and prophecies that are pointing to things to come. And they didn't know what that was going to look like. right? But the New Testament reveals what the Old Testament prophesied, promised, predicted, and now it preaches it. right? And reveals Christ to us. What do we find in the Old Testament? Who's the object of the Old Testament? Christ. Who's the object of the New Testament? Christ. Who's the object of the Bible? Christ. Who is the very living Word of God? Christ. John chapter 1. Uh, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, right? His capital is Logos, the divine revelation of God. You can also see Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, about who Jesus Christ is, that He is the one who has revealed God to man. Now, we're coming up on almost time here, so we're going to finish off here. As the lineage grows more faithful and fruitful, the lineage of Cain continues down the road of sin. But the opposite is true. While Cain's lineage is going more and more sinful and greater in number and greater in sin because notice, they're doing just that. And you can find that. It's the very reason why in another chapter, in chapter 6, God's going to say, enough's enough. And in chapter 6, we're going to see as the world had gotten incredibly violent and sexually perverse. It was full of wickedness. 
Such so where, where Jesus talked about in the days of Noah will be like the days of coming the Son of Man. This is why the first 11 chapters of Genesis are so important because every doctrine you find in all of, this, in all of the Scripture, New Testament, whatever you want to call it, you find it here in Genesis. You find it even the first few chapters as we've covered so much Bible doctrine just in four and a half chapters so far up to this point. We see this. That everything here, everything is pointing to God's grace dispensed, glory displayed. But specifically here, and this is the hard part for us, this is the part that we don't like, so hold on. God's grace and glory are dispensed and displayed in both judgment and redemption. We don't have redemption unless there's judgment. But because there's judgment, there's also the opportunity for redemption. And notice from the very first sin in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Judgment comes, but so does redemption. Death comes, but so does Eve. Life, the promise of life, the promise of the promised seed to crush the head of the serpent. We find that life is promised when there's death. That forgiveness is promised when there's sin. That grace is given when it's undeserved because that's exactly what grace is. And all of this is to the glory of God who has demonstrated the riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, we'll, we'll stop here. Make a circle there. We'll get into Enoch's life next, not next Wednesday because we got revival, so maybe the one after that. Um, everything will be leading up to God's judging of sin. Because God is just, He must judge sin, right? I hear all this all the time. People who... I'm trying to find a nice way to put it, but there's not much of a nice way. People who are God-denying heathens, who, who don't know the Bible, don't believe the Bible, don't care to know the God of the Bible, right? Who go, He's just up there and just mean and... He's just so judgmental, and you're just so judgmental. Who is he to do that? Why would God send good people to hell? He doesn't. There's no good people that have ever gotten to heaven. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. That's why the grace of God is needed. But there are plenty of people who go to hell, and they do so because they have chosen to go the way of Cain. They've chosen to go the way of unbelief. They have not chosen to go the right way. What's the right way? Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. To call upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 13. Call upon the name of the Lord. That's the difference. So everything is leading up to God's judging of sin, but as well... Notice this, where judgment comes, so does redemption. Where justice is served, grace and mercy is given. Look, this is coming not just to judge sin, the flood, but it's to bring about the redemption of the world. Did all the world deserve to die? Yes. How about Noah and his sons? Yes. The Bible doesn't tell us that they were without sin. It does say that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
And it will tell us as well that in Genesis 6, 9, that like Enoch before him, his great-grandfather, I believe, we'll look at that another time, that like Enoch, Noah walked with God. That's faith. Grace, faith. Grace, faith. Faith, grace. Grace, faith. Salvation, right? The redemption of the world. And ultimately, through Christ, the ark of God. It is going to be that beautiful ark of which God tells Noah and his family, come inside. Because God's already there. God's made the way of salvation for them. God is the way of salvation. And that ark is a picture of whether or not you are in Christ or out. And the difference of whether you are in Christ or out is if you have called upon the name of the Lord. Have you gone the way of Seth? The way of Abel? Or gone the way of Cain? Tonight, may we look at the Scripture and see how God has graciously and providentially allowed this Scripture from Genesis 5 all the way to Luke chapter 3 to line up to show us that this is God's revealed, God-breathed living Word that is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient for our salvation, for our sanctification, and tells us and promises us of our one day glorification to be with our Lord as it's meant to be face to face. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this night. Grateful that we can gather. Grateful that we can look at your word. Grateful that we could trust your word, God. I pray that you would allow us to be more faithful to you, to your word. God, that we would be faithful in such a wicked and perverse generation of which we have today, Lord, as we see much of what we're getting ready to study, as we see it in our own day, God, I pray, Lord, that we would have hearts that would not grow uh, tired or cold or hardened, but that we would have hearts that would, would, would burn with passion for the lost, that would burn with passion for Your glory to be displayed in this world through the salvation of sinners, through redemption, uh, so that we, there would be those who would be under Your wrath, but they would be freed from it because they would call upon Your name. Lord, help us to now to go from this place rejoicing that we are in Christ and that we have all these wonderful and beautiful promises of Your Word and that we have Your very presence within us today. Help us as we go from this place as well, Lord, just to carry these truths into this world and to have Your Holy Spirit apply them to our hearts. We love You and we thank You for this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, y'all have a blessed night. Grab yourself a few Revival Flyers. We'll see you Sunday morning.